do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. It seems so idyllic. Selling your apartment in London, quitting your well-paid jobs, and buying 10 acres in Wales to farm. Back to the land, the good life, the simple life. Until you get punched in the face. Again, again, and again. Farming isn't easy, let alone profitably and ecologically sound on a small scale. Don't let anybody tell you differently. Today's story unpacks one of those examples which after seven years of region farming might go bankrupt this month. Learn all about duck eggs, feed prices, black soldier flies, vermicompost, back to the land, and if they make it through the winter, how they are planning to dramatically change their business and scale their impact. This is the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, where we talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities, and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land and our sea, grow our food, what we eat, wear and consume. And it's time that we as investors, big and small, and consumers start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. To make it easy for fans to support our work, we launched our membership community. And so many of you have joined us as a member. Thank you. If our work created value for you, and if you have the means, and only if you have the means, consider joining us. Find out more on gumroad.com slash investing in regenag. That is gumroad.com slash investing in regenag. Or find the link below. Welcome to another episode. Today with Josh of Park Carrick. Welcome, Josh. We're going to talk a lot about the current emergency, but I also want to know a lot about duck eggs, geese eggs, and what brings you to start a farm in Wales. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ken. It's really great to be here. And let's start. I will put a beautiful video, which is sort of a bit outdated now, but still very, very pretty in the show notes below if you want to uh, see a visual overview of the farm you and your partner are running. But just to give a bit of an intro uh, because you didn't grow up in farming, what brought you to literally what brought you to the land and start start a farm? And then we'll get into uh, we're recording this at the end of October 2022, and we'll get into the current situation and, and what you're um, doing about it and why you uh, yeah why you are in an emergency. Yeah, thanks, Kun. Um, well, uh, I'm actually South African, and uh, Abby, my partner, she's um, she's British, and before we. Before we moved back and moved to the land, we were living and working in London, um, and we were there for eight years working in the city. I was working in um, in tech, um, in mobile software actually, and uh, we, I think, after eight years in London, we just got incredibly itchy. You know, like um, I started wanting to get outside. I'm I'm from, as I mentioned, from Cape Town, South Africa, so. I grew up in a very beautiful place and are you suggesting that London isn't very beautiful? You know, it's a bit of a concrete jungle and like it was super exciting when I first got there, you know, the bright lights and everything. <clears throat> but after about 8 years there, we I really started 
craving, you know, wanting to get out of the office, wanting to get outside. Um, and just having it's a, still a long time, like eight years is a, is a proper, uh, like, yeah, so it, it was definitely it, the, the shiny lights were nice for, for that's, that's, that's a considerable amount of, of your career and your time. Yeah, it, it was a, it was a slog, but I, you know, it was hard work. Um, but I, I, and I did really enjoy it. I worked with some amazing people in London. Um, but you know, I, it was something about being in a city with all those, you know, the constant noise, the sirens, the, the bright lights, the being in an office and air conditioned space with not much fresh air. And, um, it just, I think, I think I, over, over the years, I got quite a lot of anxiety being in that environment. I wanted to get outside. I wanted to do something with my hands. I wanted to be more physically active. I felt unhealthy. Um, I, I didn't feel like I ever had time to do any, you know, physical exercise or anything. So one day we just made this like really brash decision. We were like, do you know what? We're just, we're just gonna we're gonna sell our little flat in London. We're gonna quit our jobs and we're gonna go and start a farm. And it was like <laughs> we had no idea what we were about to get into. <laughs> and and what do you remember? What triggered that? I mean, I, I know people have seen the biggest little farm, but I don't think it was out there yet, or maybe it was. And and said they were gonna do it, but then the next day reality kicked in and they didn't sell their flat in London. And they mm. didn't quit their jobs and, and their lives, basically. And and you did. Was it like, was mm. it a very rainy, I don't know, February, very cold? Or was it something like, what was there a specific moment or what led up to it? And then what made you actually do it? Uh, there, there were a few things. Um, wh one was health issues. Like both of us were experiencing health problems. And I, I had gotten um, really far down the rabbit hole of diet. And came to the conclusion that I needed to actually be more involved in my own food production um, in order to ensure that I was eating healthy, nutrient-dense food. Um, and actually, I see a lot of a lot of people with a similar motivation in this space. Um, so that was one reason. The other reason was I, I had this um, in constant impending sense of doom, like, you know, <laughs> the world was about to come to an end. And I think a lot of that was just anxiety from living in the city. And, uh, and, and I, and I felt helpless. I felt helpless about, you know, the climate, um, disaster that's coming. Um, and I'm not someone who likes to, when, when I feel worried about something, I really want to get up and go and do something about it. Like I can't stand talking about stuff. And so, you know, agriculture is hu a huge issue that, um, um, and a contributor to, climate change and I really felt like I wanted to get out there and just have a go and just see if I could actively do something th that that might you know help make the world a better place one day um, and then the last contributing factor to us actually getting up and going and doing it was I actually started working from home on my, the last project um that I was doing, I left the company that I was working for and I started consulting and freelancing working from home. And that experience of working from home and having my own free time and, uh, and space to think um, really just, I think it just tipped me over the edge into wanting to, 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 to sort of detach myself from corporate life. Um, 
And I, I think it's funny because a lot of people have gone through something similar in recent times with COVID when everyone was sort of forced to go back home and to start working from home. I think so a lot re- of people reconsidering went, home, like, it, oh, actually, yeah. it's not just the place yeah. I sleep. I should it, probably do something. Yeah, It was a very powerful experience. I, you know, all my meals were home cooked. I was no longer going down to the local shop to go and get a sandwich to suddenly just scoff down in front of my computer whilst I was banging out an email. You know, I was actually like going and preparing a meal for lunch. And it was just... And they're still eating it at your computer, like, but yeah, that was a different... Yeah, yeah sometimes, yeah. Um, but but it's a powerful process. And I think a lot of people have um, have experienced the same thing and really reevaluated where they're at in their life. And, and a lot of people have made some pretty big decisions as a result of it. So... Um, yeah, so that was that was the thing that one of the things that um, that that tipped us over the edge. And Abby and I had always talked about um, having a farm one day, and the idea was we were going to go and you know do something in the city, get rich, retire, buy a farm, and then you know enjoy our lives. And we talked the a lot about this, too. and <laughs> exactly. And uh, I was sitting in a London bus one day and coming home from work and another bus sort of passed and there was this big ad on the bus i can't remember what the brand was or who the ad was for but it just had this line start where you want to go and i was like why do we want advertisement advertisement doesn't have impact that's uh, yeah yeah, well, it had a huge impact on me, but unfortunately, I don't think it increased sales for them very much because I can't even remember what the brand was. But I thought about that statement, start where you want to go. And I was like, I was like, why do you want to wait until you are possibly 60 years old and about and retired? Um, probably not, you know, as fit and active as, as you are now. Why do you want to wait until then to start farming? if you really want to farm and you want to work outside and you want to enjoy that lifestyle, then enjoy it while you're young and while you're still physically capable of doing it. So I was like, okay, right. What, how do we actually do this? Like, could we actually, could we actually sell our home and, and, and buy a farm? How would we make this happen? So it was, and, and from there, the process started basically. And I mean, there's so much to unpack there and I want to get to the emergency, but just as a, yeah. a sidestep for a second, at that moment, did you make it deliberate or was it always part of the plan to farm, not just as a homestead for yourself? You were talking a lot about, of course, the, the um, challenge of getting access to or more involved in your own food, but there's a difference between mm-hmm. your own food and food for others. Like, was mm-hmm. that from the beginning of the plan, okay, we need this. Um, uh, it's not that I'm going to keep working maybe remotely or freelance for mm-hmm. a day a week and, and with that. Mm-hmm. And we keep we keep things going, and the farm is mostly as a homestead for our own food. Or was it from the mm-hmm. beginning um, the plan to actually farm and live off the farm as well, in terms uh, mm-hmm. of uh, let's say economically? Yeah, it's a good question. Actually, it started off with the idea of going off grid. And um, some of my colleagues, if they're my old colleagues, if they're listening to this, they'll remember I had this idea to actually create. Um, like a, a space for digital nomads to go off and <clears throat> come and work on an off-grid farm. And that was going to be, it, it was mostly going to be about self-sufficiency being off-grid and, um, you know, providing a space for people to escape to. But still and, and connected to the fiber of the cable. Yeah. That grid connected to all the fiber and connected to my old digital, you know, my digital addictions. 
Um, and so, and it did start off there. And then of course we got into permaculture um, hugely and we got into self-sufficiency and that whole, uh, um, you know, that whole area. But we very quickly, um, as, as things sort of unraveled and as we started pursuing it, we, we very quickly realized that, okay, we need to figure out how we're going to make a living doing this realistically uh, for, for, for long reasons. Or I, I won't get into this too much, but basically we were going to go to Spain because we thought that's the only place we could afford to buy land. And then Abby actually got diagnosed with MS and it was a massive shock. It was literally as we left London, we had our camper van, we had all of our stuff in storage. We we're on our journey about to go and find um, find some land and go off to Spain. And then, boom, Abby's legs started getting numb. And it was like, that's weird. What's going on? And long story short, we ended up in the hospital and we ended up with, an, with a diagnosis of MS. And we were just like, how are we going to go off to Spain and start this thing away from family, away from the NHS, you know, when Abby's potentially got this like completely debilitating disease moving forward. So without going too much down that rabbit hole, the camper never went on the ferry. Yeah. Yeah. We decided let's stay in the UK. Let's stay close to family. Let's try and figure out how to do this in the UK. Although it is expensive. Um, I mean, close um, to family. You're from South Africa, but yeah, that's uh, that's it's yeah, never going to be close to, to family. Should I say, yeah, close to Abby's family, yeah. Um, so, um, so, so Wales we it became to, very different climate, yeah. And Wales, it became, yeah. Um, but so, so we weren't going to do the digital nomad thing in Spain, but then we just we're like, well, how are we going to make money doing this? Well, if you've got land, you can be farmers. Okay, cool. And also, we felt this immense responsibility as potentially future landowners, people who are sitting on agricultural land, we felt this immense responsibility to actually be more than just self-sufficient, but to be actual producers and food producers. To feed the city, yeah. And and feed people because, you know, when you take this idea of self-sufficiency, you can't scale that up. It doesn't work. You can't give everybody a a 10, 20-acre plot of land and tell them to be self-sufficient. It doesn't work. So. We felt sorry, it was our some dreams of listeners have been shattered now. No, I don't think yeah. anybody listening to this is in that <laughs> mindset. But yeah, no, that's physically, geography, and, and probably mentally not a good idea to do that with everyone. Yeah, it, it doesn't work when you scale it up. And um, so that very quickly led us on to regenerative agriculture. So we went from sort of permaculture to regenerative agriculture. And and, and, and when you say we went from one to well, what's our... Like the, I wouldn't say the big differences, but what what do you say? What what in your mind is that step from permaculture to to regenerate? Why is that a step, and why is not is it not the same thing? Yeah, it's not the. I don't see it as the same thing because, um, you know, but I I I love the design principles in per, permaculture, and I think you can apply them to not just um, all forms of agriculture, but um, you know, many aspects of life actually. Um, but when you go and look at the permaculture um, influences or content out there, it is m- generally much smaller scale, more focused on self-sufficiency, and uh, and it's not it's not really focused on um, productive large-scale food production. So, um, 
you know th- things are things are very much they're not they're not um they're not in neat rows they're not in an organized fashion they're not designed necessarily for um commercial production or efficiency so i mean you can you can translate it into that form but most of the influences in the space are so not let's say the that. current the current examples we see mostly i'm going to get emails about this for sure um yeah. are are the smaller scale homesteading not necessarily yeah. commercial scale that doesn't mean it cannot be done but we just haven't yeah. seen it yet it hasn't been hasn't formed in that way or expressed itself in that way let's say um yeah. okay so and, yeah. and so you went yeah. to we need to feed people so we need a you know we need to be farming and um and then how did you land on I mean, you landed on, on a number of acres probably because you could afford them. Um, and then the journey into, and then I promise we'll get into the emergency, but there's so much stuff back here. Yeah. Uh, but we, how did you land in the current form, let's say, of the, of the farm? And, uh, yeah, what, uh, we're now at the end of October. What mm. emergency are you in? Well, without going into too much detail about why we chose Wales, we, we ended up in Wales and we were keen to start, you know, we were like, um, actually we, what's quite unique about what we did and possibly a bit stupid is we didn't go and do any, um, we didn't really go and do any courses. We did one very little permaculture course, which, um, uh, to be honest, it doesn't really apply to what we've actually ended up doing, but, uh, we didn't go and volunteer on any farms. We didn't go woofing. We didn't. We didn't go and do any real workshops or education or, or courses or anything like that. Um, we had read lots of books. We had watched all the YouTube videos. I mean, you could call but us YouTube farmers. There's a there's a difference, and I see in my notes because uh, just sent some nice notes over the steepest learning curve in the world. Like I want to know about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was an immense learning curve. And so we we just jumped straight in. We ended up in Wales. We pretty much, we the first place we looked at happened to be great. I mean, it's not like it was a mistake purchase. It was a great purchase. But it was the first place we looked at and we bought it. We just said, okay, we're going to start. Um, and we were actually going to try and get planning permission to build um, a home, an eco home on the land, um, which is very difficult to do because it's agricultural land. Um, But we decided that we didn't want to get distracted with building a house. And so we actually, we found a derelict little cottage a few minutes up the road and we were really lucky. So we bought that and we just started squatting in this, in this old Welsh cottage that was very much in a state and needed a lot of work. Um, and we so got to work be distracted of, with, with building a house, but you had to rebuild another one basically. It, exactly. It. Yeah. But at least we had a roof over our heads, you know, we were out Fair of the point. wind and the rain and a lot of people start this journey in a caravan in a field. And actually yeah, we I mean, did you had a camper, in, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, we did live in a caravan on our field for three months. Um, and that was interesting and quite exciting, but not something I wanted to do long-term um but yeah so we were squatting in this little cottage and we just got to work on the land and we were like right it was the most threatening thing honestly like to look at 10 acres of pasture and try and okay right now let's build a diverse and profitable and ecologically sound regenerative farm go it was like 
you know, imagine a writer staring at a blank page with a writer's block. It was like, oh my God, how, what, what are we going to do? So yeah, we, we just start, like what's the first, like not with a spreadsheet, but like, what's the. Lots of, lots of spreadsheets, lots of spreadsheets, but it was very much like we were, you know, everything was a guess. Everything was just based on ideas and no practical experience. Um, so we had lots of spreadsheets we had where we actually practically started was um, on, on the, the project that we thought was going to take the longest. So we needed to start first, which was our perennial crops. So the blueberries. So the first thing we, once we had decided roughly what, how we were going to earn our income, we decided, right, let's first get the blueberries in the ground because we know they're going to take many years to actually become productive. And then let's take it from there and build around that because we knew we wanted to do blueberries. They're a high value crop. We had acidic soil. We knew of a neighbor who was successfully growing them. So we thought, right, that's a good, it's a good first step. Let's do that. So we started with the blueberries. Then we realized, oh my goodness, there's this problem of having too much grass, which we didn't even think about. Um, the grass just grows. It rains. It rains. Yeah. Yeah, in this, their sun in this climate, and it just goes. Yeah. yeah, we've got the best, some of the best grass growth in the world. The grass just grows and you think, okay, well, either I lose my productive land to scrub and I rewild it or I mow it or I get some animals. So we're like, right, well, we're, we're going to do the sensible thing and get some sheep, which may or may not have been sensible actually i love them and i'm you know i would never regret getting them but we got our sheep next um and then you kind of a long story short on youtube yeah yeah <laughs> we're yeah watching all the youtube videos actually to be honest i did start connecting with local um mm -hmm. more conventional farmers quite early on i really wanted to sort of bridge the gap between what did they think of you like typical back to the landers that are gonna hit typical the, the, back the, to the, the landers. The let's say the fence because yeah. um, they're in times burn themselves, touch the electric yeah. like yeah, but they typical, still you still wanted to connect with them yeah. because I, I wait, basically wait, just yeah. I, I basically just went and got really drunk with one of them, or a few of them actually, a bunch of them. Um, and that was the best way to do it. Honestly, this was before like, you had a child, yeah. Yeah, before I had a child, yeah. Um, Abby still remembers the night I came home, and it was. But awful. it's that's so, investment in like networking, and it's your yeah. your your rite of passage on the local community. Yeah, I th I think I connected with people um, that some of the local farmers really well like that, and you know a lot of. Um, barriers were dropped and a lot of you know they they could see my what my intentions were and that and that I wasn't like completely off my rocker because there's a huge cultural gap between rural folk and city folk I mean there's just such a huge divide there and um, uh, you know they looked at us and we were just you we were just a classic example of townies that had that had you know, that had money and wanted to come and buy some land and live the good life. Um, and yeah, as I said in, in, in one of my YouTube videos recently, which, which you watched, um, you know, I, I was told by several different farmers, um, there's a saying around here, they arrive in their fancy cars and they leave on their bicycles. Um, and it's because they have seen it many times and it's actually, 
I talk about the back to the land movement that we were very much a part of the most recent wave, which I th I think it seems like quite a few people started on this journey around 2015-ish. It seems like around here, there was this big sudden surge of people moving into the area, trying to do this sort of alternative stuff. Um, but there's been many of these waves before. And I've been told by a few locals that it happened I think it happened back in the 60s uh, and I think again in the 80s. I can't remember the exact dates, but it's happened in, on several occasions. And most of the time it ends in in tears, in divorce, in in debt and financial ruin. Honestly, I mean, it, it tears people apart because there's this ideal and there's this expectation of the good life and what it is and what it means. And, and then there's the reality of mother nature and, and farming and the, and, and, and how tough it is. And um, so, let's so, double yeah, click on we, that. I mean, not the divorce part because that's not the case, but the, the debt part might be, shouldn't be the case, but we are um, in the toughness now where do you find yourself now? So you, you planted the blueberries, you have some sheep, but it's, I don't think that's a, a huge part of, I think the flock is 20 or so, um, or maybe yeah. even less now. But um, yeah. the, the main part is duck eggs, which you, yeah. you figured out is an interesting market, but now yeah. you're being hit by um, by input costs, by feed costs, which yeah. we in the regen movement always say, no, but the input cost doesn't really reach us too much. But of course, if you buy organic grains and, and it arrives from somewhere or, or Ukraine this year, um, mm. you're going to be hit, even if you don't get it from Ukraine, like prices have gone through the roof. If, uh, in yeah. any, en any energy intensive, um, sector is being hit right now, even if you get your, your, your green electricity from somewhere, it's connected to the gas yeah. price and it explodes. So what situation do you find yourself now in? I, I will put the YouTube videos. You're documenting mm -hmm. this story as it goes every week, which I highly recommend people to watch. I'll put it below, but where do you find yourself now? Um, and, and then we'll unpack a lot of the back of the land movement and yeah. the potential future of that, because yeah. Yeah, that wave is going to repeat itself. I'm not too worried about that, but the, the question yeah. is, what do we do with it and how do we make some impact on, on the land? But where do you find yourself now and, and why are we recording now? Because this was going to happen, but it wasn't necessarily scheduled for the end of October, 2022. Yeah. Um, right. So, I mean, to cut to the chase, our farm is about to go bankrupt and we've pretty much just got November. Like our, our cash flows tells us that you reach the end of November and unless you figure something out, that's game over. And um, so um, I, I decided to start a little series on YouTube called How to Fail at Farming. And I, I did that because I thought, right, if we're going to go under, if this is going to be it, um, I have to extract some value out of this failure. You know, I have to take something good away from it. Um, and I, I want to help um, educate people about the realities of small scale agriculture and agriculture in general and how tough it is. Um, and I want to share our learnings with people. I want to share what I think we've done wrong, what we could have done better, how we're going to potentially get out of this. Um, and I, yeah, I decided I'd, I'd like to document the process because no matter what happens, um, I think that that will be of value to the community moving forward. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the main thing that nailed us or is nailing us is these rising is the rising cost of feeds linked to uh, Russia and Ukraine and the global 
And just to give us an idea, like what, yeah, what, what kind of percentages are, are you looking at now? Uh, or what kind of money, like cash flow going out basically? Um, yeah, every I week mean, or every month just to, to see how, yeah, how tight or yeah. how negative it got. Yeah. I mean, um, our costs have increased, um, by more than 50%, um, since, since I, installed our new feed bin so our, our feed silo that we've got which was last year um early last year we installed that feed bin so that we could benefit from bulk feed prices you know before then i was buying bagged feed and i was hauling it um, by hand and so our prices have gone up by more than 50 percent when you accommodate when you factor in all the other inflation across all of the other um, costs in our business um and you know it's it's hard to, um, even though they should know retailers, it, it's hard to get them to, to understand the speed at which you have to put your prices up. And, um, I have now the, the supply, our main supplier that we're with, our main, um, customer that we're with now has agreed to a very steep price increase with us. And, and it remains to be seen what exactly, um, how that will impact the demand for our eggs. But luckily, we've got some very, very good customers who really care. So I think we'll be supported in that way. But our business, you know, there are th we have to, our feed bill every month is is thousands. Um, and for, for such a small business like us, that is massive. Um, now, people who, who've watched the YouTube series so far, we've done part one and part two, will know that we've just recently culled a large portion of, of our flock. And that's to help reduce our feed bill. Um, and I think that the other thing that I, I do want to make people, I really want to emphasize that although the feed bill has really been the nail in the coffin, I think that it's important that we take responsibility for the fact that there are other factors at play here, other reasons why we're in trouble. And, um, you know, a lot of that is due to the fact that we are inexperienced farmers, you know, that we spent the first sort of five years figuring out exactly what how this do. whole farming yeah. thing really works. Yeah. And separating the, you know, myths from actual, um, you know, fact from fiction that you, the, the fiction that you see on YouTube from the actual facts on the ground for people who are trying to earn a living full-time farming. Um, and we also have certain ideals, you know, ideals about how we want to run the farm, how we want to keep our animals. And those ideals make it very difficult, make it more difficult to be profitable. Um, and, and there is a reason why farmers do things the way they do. Um, and we're learning the hard way. So, um, so, so that, those are sort of some of the, Part of, those are some of the reasons as to why we're in the situation we're in. But the businesses, um, as I said, you know, it's crunch time for us. Um, uh, this is a this is a cash flow issue for us, um, and it's happened very quickly. Um, and I, I think the other thing to to mention is that there's, you know, I've been contacted by quite a few people since releasing those videos saying, you know, they they don't fully understand. Um, the mechanics of poultry businesses like you know they they think for example that our ducks could potentially forage more land or that potentially we're not managing our grassland properly in order to 
help feed the animals or that we should be somehow growing our own food or feed for the poultry um, for our ducks. And I think it's because regenerative agriculture is generally, there's a, a lot of the focus is on ruminants on grazing animals and with poultry it's a whole different story you know they need like, grain or they need some nutrient they need dense, nutrient dense yeah. food yeah they don't have that ability to turn grass into into except nutrition. for geese right if i understand correct like, except for be, geese yeah would that yeah. be why did you go for ducks not for geese because you talk in that video yeah. that i mentioned at the beginning um like they have this unique opportunity or unique capability sorry of actually foraging and yeah. and still create high nutrient dense protein in shape yeah. of eggs and meat. And um, what what I mean was geese even more difficult than ducks to find? Like duck eggs is, are geese eggs even more difficult to to sell than duck eggs? Or is that a, a future? I wouldn't say thought or idea. Like to find the one poultry species in this case, geese that actually can forage mm -hmm. and doesn't need all of that or maybe even none of it uh, in terms of outside um, very expensive at the moment feed. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good question, and I've 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 put so much thought into geese, and and um, I really love the theory behind it. Um, What's the practice? Yeah, we've had geese. Uh, we actually recently um, got rid of our geese because uh, over the years we've just realised simplify, 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 focus, focus, focus on what you're good at and what you're doing, and um, the geese were really creating some issues for us specifically when we had to lock down the birds during avian flu. So uh, we, 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 we decided to, to, to simplify things there, but with geese, they're amazing. You know, they, they have that ability to turn grass into forage um, un, unlike, um, sorry, to turn forage and grass into actual meat. You, you wouldn't really keep your geese for eggs. That's not, they don't, you know, they produce maybe 30 eggs a year compared to a khaki Campbell that does roughly 300 eggs a year. Um, you would really be keeping the geese for the meat. Uh, it's what we in the UK at least would have eaten for Christmas dinner, you know, much more commonly than say turkey. Um, so it was, it was really a traditional Christmas roast. Um, the meat is delicious. There's lots of fat on it. It's much more moist than turkey is, although I know a lot of people say you just got to cook the turkey right, which I've never managed to do. But um, geese, is, geese is absolutely delicious. Um, uh, Has no we methane. Gonna, yeah. There, there, there's, yeah, there's no methane as far as I know, which I find really amazing because they don't really use, um, from what I understand, they don't use fermentation to actually digest the grass. It's their unique gizzard, which actually does that breaking down. Um, and uh, they have to eat constantly. And they, there's actually quite a lot of waste. When, when it comes out, the grasses, you know, they have these really big green poos, which look almost like unprocessed grass. But they, they manage to do it by just constantly eating. Which is, is <clears> it good <throat> for the land? Like, is, that a, is it a good grazer, quote unquote? Yeah, they're very good lawnmowers. They yeah. they are. <clears throat> they're very good lawnmowers. Um, you, sorry, I was interrupting you. You were saying if we would like, what what is there a future place for geese on the farm? If like a year from now um, we talk in the farm. Yeah, if 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 we were going to get into geese, it would be for the meat and um and you know this is another example of of um I I have I take issue with minute scale agriculture, very small scale agriculture, and this is one of the reasons is because. You know, they talk a lot about diversity and, and stacking enterprises. And, and so 
geese was one of those examples which we were trying to add into the mix. But if we were going to process geese for meat, to do that effectively, it would be another capital investment that we'd have to make because we'd need that abattoir. We'd need to be able to process the birds. Which processing you need, geese, you need a few thousand birds at least a year, probably more. Yeah, yeah. You need <clears throat> you need enough birds to to justify it. Um, you know, you need the correct equipment. Processing geese is actually very difficult. Like processing chickens, easiest. Ducks is the next step up in terms of difficulty because of all their down and how hard it is to pluck. Um, and then geese are even further up there. So they're very difficult to process. They're also very seasonal. People tend to only want them during Christmas um, or sort of around uh, wintertime. They take quite long to grow and finish. Um, and so you've got a large portion of the year where you're working on growing these geese and then a very small window of, of, of time to sell. And so then you have also to like sort of sell in, all of them pre-service. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, so that's so a very different, it's not a business you can just easily stack on top and just make a bit of extra yeah. money left and right. No, you need to do this full time and only, yeah. almost only if, do this. If I had, um, another, if I was doing a meat business with say, um, some chickens or ducks already, and I already had the processing facility and the license and everything. Sure. I, I don't think, I think it would make a lot of sense to add geese into the mix, but as an egg producer, as a primarily, primarily as an egg producer, it, it, it's just a whole nother level of investment for us. So another like loan, cows. you know, yeah. and yeah. yeah. Um, so coming back to the, the, the feed issue with ducks is that, you know, you can't, uh, you can't rely on acreage to feed your ducks. You have to rely on ghost acreage. You know, you have to rely on arable, grain producers to help you feed your ducks or your chickens or whatever poultry you might have. Um, and, you know, people say, well, you, then you shouldn't have poultry or they're not. To, well, on 10 acres, you can't keep ruminants and make a business. It's just not possible. You know, um, I, I would, in order to you make a business like a small on scale dairy or something, I'm, I'm joking. No, well, but it's, yeah, it's, I mean, that, I mean, yeah, you could, I, but you're, you're, you're not going to make any money or very, you, you could try it. You're not going to make yeah. enough money basically. Um, and so when you've got 10 acres, you've got limited options. I mean, I basically, I basically put it down to two options. You've got poultry, if you want to do livestock or you've got market gardening and, the market gardening thing, I, I've, I've, I've tried both. Um, I haven't tried market gardening at the same level of intensity as the ducks because that was our primary focus. We did a bit of market gardening alongside the poultry. Um, but the problem is locally here, you know, there's not, um, there isn't that uh, easy to access market to go and do our, to do a veg box scheme, really. We've, we've already got some very well-established um, uh, a market gardeners slash wholesalers in the area who do a great job. We also have a lot of really small family-run retailers who buy in from you know the local wholesaler, um, and and you know people have that community. They have that those those little high streets and the space with the place where they go and they buy their veg. And um, it, it's not like it's not like maybe a city where all of it's supermarket veg and you want to maybe come and disrupt things and you want to say, Hey, don't go to the supermarket, come to me, buy the veg directly yeah. and buy a veg box. And, you know, I don't really want to go and say, Hey, 
stop buying from your local family small retailer on the high street and come and buy so directly better. from, from di- me directly from us yeah no 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 yeah so in so our that, context that leaves poultry basically yeah so it, it leaves poultry if, if you really and i should also clarify because our, our goals from the start were and this was a bit too idealistic really and this is one of my lessons that i've learned is our goals from the start was we were going to be 100% farm farmers on the farm no side hustles no other income and and that was our goal and and you know I was warned by the other farmers the the real ten, farmers ten locally. acres yeah is I was warned Josh that's not you're not going to be able to do that and being the type of person I am I dug my heels in and I said no I'm going to show you that on 10 acres I'm going to be a farmer producing nothing other than food and I'm going to make it work and that was too idealistic. Um, and so um, a lot of the time you see other people making small scale farming sort of work in, I'm, I'm doing, you know, yeah, yeah. Quote, quote unquote, yeah, but with Airbnb, tourism, courses, yeah. experiences, dinner, I mean, yeah. anything yeah. else than selling pure food, yeah. Yeah, yeah, a job on the nine, side. Eight, like 90 plus, uh, I'm, I'm getting the numbers wrong. Lauren is going to, Manning's going to kill me. Um, but I think in even in the US on large scale commercial farms, the majority, I'm going to say somewhere in 80, 90% has an mm-hmm. off-farm job. To, right, yeah. For sure, also for medical reasons, for healthcare reasons and, and insurance yeah. reasons, other, other reasons, just to pure cash. But even mm-hmm. there at that scale, um, most farmers or most farming families have an off-site an, on, yeah. an off-farm job to keep the lights on which exactly. is very yeah. scary if you think about it it's very scary and you know i mean the real farmers around here um they not only do they have a a, a job on the side like hgv driving which pays pretty well actually especially these days um or contracting using the kit that they've got um the tractors and whatnot but they've they also tend to have hundreds of acres and they are claiming subsidies on that acreage. So in our case, we They're were not really even screwed. farming if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they don't get me wrong. They're putting a lot of hours in and they're working hard. Yeah, That's yeah, something yeah. else I just want to say is since arriving here, I have never met a people or um, an, in like a, a, a community of people that work as hard as farmers i mean they are hard we just put out an interview like this week of the laziest farmer of the uk and i listened to it with matt that's right yeah. yeah and and it's interesting that that whole definition of i have to work until like i have to burn the midnight oil and, and in summer yeah. i have to be on my tractor until midnight and uh, it's it's a very interesting it's probably a lot of that is needed but also a lot of that is is part of that mm. and he said yeah i'm too lazy to farm against nature like if we the 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 conventional extractive system is also extremely hour intensive and does not sustainably mentally. Like you, you cannot mm. do that forever and, and yeah. hope that that's fine. And if you're not yeah. making, like if you do it for a few years and, and your farm is getting off the ground and your, your, the system is starting to work, etc. No, it's yeah. a slow hill. Like it's a, it's a downhill slowly or fastly. And the, yeah. I can only imagine the level of stress. I think that the farmer suicide rates everywhere in the world are way, it's like one of the most dangerous yeah. jobs. And it's the highest accidents, suicides. Uh, yeah. It's crazy. I, I believe farming is the highest uh, suicide rate of any other industry, from what I understand. And but I can and tell that was you, that's not the reason you went there. Like from from the city, you wanted to be outside, work a lot, 
yeah. deal with your anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably not the combination you want to bring to, yeah. to farming, looking back. I mean, yeah. um, I, I'll say that farmers, like um, multi-generation farmers, so not, um, you know, not really first-generation farmers like myself, but guys, who have, guys and girls who've been in this business for many generations and grown up with it, they are cut from a different cloth. I mean, they, they work hard. And they work in rough conditions and for very little pay. And it's it, it never ceases to amaze me. And it's just incredible. Um, but, you know, our situation, as I was saying, not only were we trying to do it without a job on the side or a non-agricultural related enterprise like Airbnb, which we now do have because we realized, um, but we were cash also... We're, we're also just, we don't even qualify for subsidies. You can't get any subsidies on 10 acres. You have to be slightly bigger. And even then, you know, basically the more acreage you have, the more farm subsidies you can claim. So it, it is a case of size helps a lot. <clears throat> um, so we so let's, were let's talk about so November. Yeah, let's talk about November. What needs to happen yeah. now to get you through the winter? And then when I hear your future vision mm. you're going to do a massive yeah. airbnb experience with uh, fiber optic cable and remote working or something <laughs> else on the farming side but what needs to happen now and what are you going to do to basically yeah. solve not solve but yeah solve the cash flow issue and get yeah. you through the winter and is that enough because are you like mm. expecting that that feed cost will come down or what happens after the winter Mm. Um, yeah, first of all, we're definitely not going to do any more than one Airbnb. Um, and I'll talk why. It's more also a lot of work. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, when you work it up per hour, it pays a hell of a lot better than farming. But um, I don't, I I'm still have ideals about being a, primarily a food producer. And I, and I don't, I don't want to turn it into a big campsite. You know, yeah. that's, I, I think it's great having one Airbnb there. People need to be able to come visit the farm. It's a good extra bit of income, but I, I definitely don't want to turn it into a big campsite. Um, where we are now is, as I said, end of November, if we don't generate it, um, around about 5,000 pounds is, is, is the minimum that we need to see us through the winter. Um, and so the plan is actually to run a crowdfunding campaign uh, to help generate that, that cash. Now, actually, when I started the YouTube channel, that wasn't our intention, you know, that we only did it because, first of all, my best friend from South Africa rang me up and he was like, Josh, man, you, you can't, you can't, you've been doing this for seven years. You can't just let this whole thing fall apart. You need to, you need to, um, you need to do a crowdfunder. And he said that. And then I started getting a lot of comments on the video, like I would support you. I would do a GoFundMe, whatever. So I, and we were very reluctant because I, you know, because your whole idea of making it work, yeah, yeah, by yourself. We, we see that even more as failure, and you know, we are we see ourselves as a commercial business, not a not a charity. But so we've actually <clears throat> we've come up with an idea for um, we, we're going to do a crowdfunder, but there will be rewards that people get back, and there'll be very real things that they can get in return. So we're not just going to take eggs. donations. You're going to ship eggs to South Africa, no. <laughs> no, I, I happen to know from experience they ship very badly. Um, I can only imagine uh, the mess. Yeah, yeah, um, but uh, but yeah. So okay, so we're it's going to be a crowdfunding with rewards, and yeah. and for about five k, which sounds yeah. possible. I mean, it depends on your crowd, obviously, and, and let's yeah. hope some of the crowd is listening to this, uh, because that would be already, let's say, for the space to see the transition to make sure you make it. 
and then mm-hmm. enable you to go through a transition would be very interesting. Not that next year you'll be in the same issue and have to keep that. That I think is your reluctance, like not wanting to to keep asking the crowd yeah. to keep going yeah. and thus not being no. financially stable. No. So one thing, you know, we've had to think very hard about this because one thing we do not want to do is we do not want to just limp along. We don't, we don't want to take, you know, five grand and then sort of get to next year. No, use this emergency to, to fit, yeah, to, uh, to, to get to, to the next reinvent level ourselves. or to yeah. go down or get to the next level. Yeah. 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 We need to, we need to, um, Either we need to fail fast, or we need to and 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 just and just and no depth, yeah. you know, change our lives and do something else, or we need to actually figure out how we're going to sustainably move this forward on ten acres. You can sell and, the farm to the next uh, back to the land movement. It's probably happening like every exactly. seven years. I mean, if they study this, they've already seen it's like it's like some kind of exactly. Cycle. There are there are plenty of people out there who want to have a go, just like we did. Um, and I and I would just I would just tell them go for it, but just don't quit your day job, basically. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, we've actually got some very interesting opportunities on the horizon. We've got, um, I guess, without, uh, for confidentiality reasons, without talking about it in great detail, um, there is a farm in Europe that wants to buy hatching eggs from us. And that being fertilized duck eggs, which they can then incubate, and then they can basically get our genetics of khaki Campbells onto their farm. Um, and then suddenly your 10 acres, let's say, multiplies. The whole seed thing is very interesting. We're going to do another episode on that in the nutrient seeds, density. Yeah, yeah. And, and the genetics and selling... Yeah, selling to others your... It's an input, but it's not really an input. Like Then suddenly with 10 acres, you can... I'm imagining, yeah. I don't know how that works in, in duck eggs, but you can, let's say, touch a lot more uh, more yeah. hectares and acres and, and touch a lot more more people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, hatching eggs are incredibly more valuable than table eggs, um, like immensely so. So that would... What, what is immensely? 10x, 50x, 100x? Um, uh, like, you know, you're talking um, sort of... Um, 40 pence an egg table eggs um, compared to uh, which is we are very by the way anyone listening should know we are not failing because we're not niche enough and we're not premium enough okay we are the UK's only organic duck egg producer and uh, talking about and, a niche and, yeah. and, and we uh, yeah and we sell our eggs I, I mean I imagine our eggs are probably the most expensive in the UK um so that's not why we're failing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so our, pence, eggs, yeah. our eggs are yeah. about 40 pence each. Um, and, you know, hatching egg, depending on the volumes you're selling it, but at small volumes, you're selling it at £2.50 an egg. Um, you know, so it's it's many yeah. times yeah. greater and, and it makes a huge difference to our business. So, And, and is that um, easy to do? Probably not. Otherwise, they wouldn't be searching for you. They would be f- trying to find somebody on the continent. Um, like- it's, it's it's not hard to do, you know. You ultimately just have to set up a breeding group, and you have to. But the thing is, you need the right genetics, and so which is um, nice. when it comes, yeah, when it comes to khaki Campbells um, and the ducks that we keep, um, which is a type of ducks, just for people to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So a, we keep it's a specific genetics. Yeah, we keep um, Campbell breeds all focused on egg laying, and and the three breeds we've got are dark Campbells. Um, khaki Campbells and Welsh Harlequins, which um, which are also actually Campbells, 
Um, and, and you've you know, been they, selecting they, that for for years, obviously on yeah quality, like on laying, on easiness, exactly. disease. I mean, you've been selecting, and now maybe in a position to start selling. Yeah. Exactly. So those duck breeds are pretty rare. Um, first of all, just the fact that there are very few duck egg producers in the UK, let alone actually uh, organic uh, certified duck egg producers. So you don't get many farms who have that sort of volume, uh, those nut population numbers like we do to select from. You know, you've got lots of backyard people with ducks, but they've got small populations and those populations are coming from other places which are not breeding in the same way that we're breeding so i actually i look at our breeding program as a regenerative breeding program which the way we go about it is um is you know we are breeding for every generation to be better than the previous one and we're doing that by brutally selecting out birds that don't meet our requirement requirements we're um, withholding as much, um, how do I say, we're moddy coddling and care and, you know, we're, we're, we're giving them um, a natural environment and we're saying we're not going to give you all the additional medication and parasite wormers and we're, we're not going to basically we're gonna see who makes it. We're gonna, the toughies. Yeah. Yeah. It's survival of the fittest and we're not going to try and optimize your performance through inputs. You know, if a bird, if there's an animal welfare issue, um, and we do the same process with our sheep, and I'm really stoked about where we've got to with our flock of sheep. But if there's an animal welfare issue, we immediately treat them, we sort them out, we make sure they're happy, but they get a black mark and they do not move into the next flock. And our criteria that we that we have when selecting are much stricter than what people usually have. Like for example, with our sheep. If a sheep has to be, if a sheep gives birth and we have to pull that lamb, we're not happy because we got a big lamb. We're really annoyed because we had to pull the lamb. Um, we we want sheep that, and that is very common amongst farming community. Is you know they're 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 proud about how many lambs they've pulled and how big the lamb was when it came out. So how, how sheep, unique is that approach, like that genetic approach, also in sheep? Because I I sense that there's another opportunity there as well like to get these genetics right on low input low input also in terms of time and resources and having to pull mm. sheep or having to medicate ducks which for sure is not easy like how unique is that approach to creating the toughies i, th I think it's i think it's quite unique actually like even if people say that they, you know, everyone says that they're selecting the best of the flock for the next Yeah, but the, the next in this generation. case, best means something else. Yeah. But in this case, it's like, it's like, okay, you're saying you selected the best, but, um, you know, how much attention, how much, like, resources did you give those, those that flock through the year? Like, how many inputs and resources did you get to get that animal to look like that and perform like that? And so we we've been, from the very beginning, giving we kind of call we call it minimal intervention and that is we give them as little as possible and we see how they do and if there's an issue we treat it and then they don't get bred from and we have lots of criteria that we score them against and then from and then we select them for breeding so regenerative mark shepherd calls it like what is it stun sheer yeah sheer total no, out of neglect that's right yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Now, I don't neglect, um, maybe is a bit tricky, but yeah, you get the idea. Yeah. yeah I, I don't, I don't utterly neglect them. Um, but, uh, you know, and he uses that principle with plants, right? And we've actually done the same thing with our blueberry patch, which is a whole nother story. Um, but so yeah, regenerative breeding. So our genetics, um, we also happen to get our khaki Campbells <clears throat> came from, um, a farm, uh, they're called a family called the court langs. And they have a farm, and I, I don't know exactly how many generations. I Someone said to me they've been breeding khaki Campbells for seven generations. And I'm, I'm not sure and if not that number ducks, is. But the family, yeah. Uh, that the, the, yeah, the family have been breeding khaki Campbell ducks. So how many generations of ducks? That's Generations. Oh, many, yeah. Yeah. So I, and I, I say seven, you know, people don't could quote six, me on this because five, it, yeah, it, it yeah, could be less, but they've been doing it pretty much the longest of anyone. And, and they're actually known all around the world for, for their um, genetics. Now, that's where our original Kaki Campbell genetics came from. <clears throat> and then in 2020, when COVID kicked off, um, very last minute, I found out that Peter Court Lang, um, who was the last, you know, member of that family, uh, or the sort of the last member who still wanted to farm, he decided to retire and no one else wanted to take over the family business. So he sold it on to someone else. That other person seems to not be doing a hell of a lot with with the flock that he got. Um, and we were like, well, we're sitting on 200 ducks right now that came from Peter um, and we need to breed our own. We basically, we, we, we were like, we got to start breeding our own ducks. So we, we got into that. So the genetics that we've got are did really special. Did you make special. an attempt to buy that, the other one or not? Did, did, did we it? make an attempt? Before no, Peter retired? Oh, no, no, no. By the time we heard from Peter, ah, okay. um, it, it was already, he had already found a buyer and sold all of his incubators and everything. So, um, but it made you aware, like, okay, we need to, we, there's not going to be a place anymore to buy our our, yeah. our future flock, yeah. so we need to do it ourselves. Yeah, and certainly not the quality that we were expecting. So, yeah, of course. so we 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 had a really good stock to begin with, and we built up from there, and then we've applied our regenerative breeding principles to that. Um, and so we got these. So coming right back to your original question, sort of, and what's um, how are we going to get through the winter, and what's next? So. One of the potential options for us in the future is to is to really sell our genetics and to um, take the role, of, you know, to the role of a leading breeder in in that in that space for khaki Campbell ducks. Um, and this farm in Europe wants hatching eggs from us, and the very unique thing is they want quite a lot of hatching eggs from us. Um, and it'll be a long period of of supplying them hatching eggs. Um, because they want to build up their flock. They want to build up a flock of, of khaki Campbells and they don't have access to them. So um, that's one opportunity on the, on the horizon, but it's not guaranteed. It's, it's sitting there to kick off in March, but it's, it's not 100%. A lot of things can happen until March, yeah. Yeah, and, and we are very close. We've been through a long process of getting an export license with DEFRA and... As far as I know, they are crossing I's and dotting the T's, um, dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Um, and we should have our export license pretty soon to do that. So um, so that's an opportunity on the horizon. Um, and then uh, and then there are other there are other aspects. To, so there's another opportunity there, which is 
obviously the Airbnb will kick off next year because it'll be it'll be season again and we were just too late without this year so our Airbnb was only ready at the end of the season so the Airbnb will help next year but the the next really big opportunity for us and the, what I'm very excited about is essentially to produce um, a, a super compost from our duck manure and so we have these aspirations for the farm moving forward if we can get through the winter if we can get over this hump and we can survive um, where we want to ultimately take the business on our 10 acres uh, we we need to be profitable and we need to be comfortably um, we need to be more resilient and we just you know we are suffering right now with the feed price increase because we're just not resilient enough. And we, we, we admit that. Um, and so moving forward, we need to be more profitable and more resilient. And we have this vision for uh, two things apart from the genetics. One is to, um, to produce a carbon negative duck egg. Um, and, I've got a lot of work to actually, cal- I, I want it to be calculated and I want it to be calculated properly. You know, I don't, I don't want to greenwash this. I want this to be a proper sum. Maybe we can only get to carbon neutral and that'll be fine too. But if we could get to carbon negative, I'd be very happy. Um, so we want to produce um, a carbon negative duck and egg. Most of that work is to- going to be on the, the, the ghost acres, basically on, on the yeah. grain side or... What yeah. what what do you see the work that needs to be done? Because it sounds like on the farm itself, at least on the the grazing of the ducks, which obviously don't graze a lot, like that yeah. there's a limit there that you reach already yeah. reached or pre, will reach yeah. pretty quickly. Even though all yeah. the YouTube commenters are, are saying you should grow your own feet, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. How how are you going to get to a carbon uh, positive or neutral or negative, whatever the the right direction is? Let's say one you you get the picture. How do you get to yeah. that kind of thing? So. Yeah, it's a, a very good question. When we rely on so many ghost acres, how, how are we going to get to carbon negative or neutral? And the way I see us doing that is, um, first of all, we need to get off the soy as quick as possible. And, and that's the, that is the big sticking point for all poultry producers is how do you get off the soy train? Um, so we 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 want to move over to black soldier fly larvae production and i've talked about Ooh, this in now, now we are my whole videos. different youtube community yeah yeah so BSF. um there, there are technologies about. coming out that you know a lot of people are like oh why don't you just do black soldier flies in your polytunnel or like no worry everybody that that says that i've seen the first factories from the inside we've done due diligence that a fund i used to work with yeah and it's fascinating very possible but not easy at all talking yeah, about genetics exactly. of, of flies good luck yeah like, like this yeah. is something you need to do at a yeah at a this is not a this is not something you can do on the side in in a room you have left over in exactly your exactly and, yeah. exactly and and the other thing is you know black soldier fly loves are native to to the uk so they don't survive through the winters here um although climate change need might change them. that yeah. but need, um, and and then then yeah that's always the thing always the point everybody raises don't worry if they escape i've seen rooms full of these flies don't worry if yeah. they escape they anyway die in the winter yeah or if the winters get warmer we might yeah. get into other exactly. licensing issues yeah yeah so it doesn't come without its um complications um but how much would that but, fix but, like how much would that like help you because they are able to and, and some other insects but this specifically to mm-hmm. turn 
low-grade food waste, brewery mm -hmm. waste, or any kind of sludge, basically, into mm -hmm. protein, into insects. And I've seen living yeah. examples, like living insects feeding them to poultry is very interesting for the poultry because they it triggers something compared to pellets they get or compared to grain. But how much would that be, like the protein thing, would that fix a lot of your issues? And, or would it just fit a, a small percentage of feed issue and you still have to buy 80% somewhere else? It's, um, it, it only fixes part of, um, it only gets us part of the way to a carbon neutral or negative egg. Um, but it is a huge part of that. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know in percentage terms and I haven't got the exact numbers, but I know that our biggest impact by far is in the soy that we consume as a farm. So moving, moving the poultry over to black soldier flies by taking local food waste and then converting that into insects and then feeding that to the ducks, you know, you're hitting on multiple things. They, first of all, you're helping redirect food waste um, away from landfill and, um, and that creates a lot of methane production and that's pretty bad in itself. Um, and then you're turning it into protein and then you're foregoing your soya consumption which comes from another part of the world and potentially is involved in deforestation etc so there's a massive improvement there by switching over to black soldier flies does it do anything um, for the taste and nutrient density of the eggs oh oh yeah i mean on that point of view uh that's the other thing is like we we the really carbon negative produce... and the most healthy egg in the world so that's, that would be yeah nice the most nutrient dense egg because by the way duck eggs are a lot more nutritious than chicken eggs and i i'm a big fan of duck eggs in general so we you know we could <laughs> potentially move towards being one of the most nutritious and uh, nutrient dense eggs in the world as well okay but, but um, I, i'm imagining this is like a massive undertaking like does it make sense on 10 acres yeah so um i've actually had a conversation with a gentleman from a different company that do black soldier fly larvae like a lot of people have seen in my videos i referenced um uh, better origin um and i don't know what's the other one called now anyway yeah it. the container um, size yeah, you buy yeah. your off the plug plug and play and it should yeah. work yeah they they won't they won't talk to me i'm um i'm too small scale and it wouldn't be realistic. But this other guy that I've spoken with, um, we had a we had a chat, and it sounds like um, if I could get the flock up to a thousand ducks, where we're you know we've been sitting at five hundred. If I could get the flock up to a thousand ducks, it would make commercial sense. I would match the current cost of feed um, by by renting his shipping container because that has a, a monthly cost that goes out, <clears throat> and then I but source he the local food. It. And he manages he, the shipping container. No, I manage it. Okay. It's on the farm. I source local food waste. I blend that food waste. I feed it into this container in a tube, and the soldier flies eat that. Um, and then I feed the flies to the, uh, or the should I say, the larvae to the uh, to the ducks. Um, so alive, I need to, which fixes a, a huge issue for alive. processing these because that's a massive alive. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say a warning. It sounds really nice on YouTube videos, but yeah, it's the blending it, yeah. getting the right feed mix, I think, as always, yeah. like garbage in, garbage out. And, yeah. but it's fascinating to, okay, so you need to, to, to make any commercial sense. It needs to be double the flock and then you can do a big, yeah, but let me, let me just and say you get a lot of, you get a lot of fertilizer out of it as well. That's the big thing with soldier flies, actually. It's not necessarily yes. the protein. It's what they, what they shit basically, which makes it yeah. potentially even more interesting from a from a cash flow perspective. 
Yeah, so um, I, I just want to say this is a pretty, you know, this is a big idea, and and to to make this happen is is not going to be easy, but um, it is the future of poultry and possibly pig production. It is it's going there. Like we are, I can see that this is. There are no other, as far as I can see, there are no other re- real better options. I mean, people will talk about why don't you feed the ducks um, sort of legumes or um, beans or, um, you know, other other sort of high protein grains. <clears throat> and, you know, we've, we've looked into it. People have tried it. There's all sorts of complexities around the anti-nutrients that come with those beans. And the, the conclusion overall has been soya is the ultimate protein for poultry and that's why we use it for very good reason but this really is going to be the future and it's very early days but that's where the world is moving and if we carry on i want to be on that train as very as soon as possible because okay. we need to super interesting now the, the other part there's another piece yeah, yeah. and then the other piece is um okay so we'll get we'll have to source some carbohydrate locally and uh, that's going to be possibly wheat or barley. Now, you know, there's going to be some sort of carbon cost to that, but we can't really do much about that. So that that wheat or barley that comes in is is it's got to be sourced locally, and it's um, it's just something we can't get around. The other side to the business is as as well as using the black soldier fly as the insect production is I want to combine the poultry with short rotation coppice on the farm. So I want to reduce my grazing pasture. I want to reduce my pasture, my strict pasture only. Um, I'd still have ruminants on there, but in very specific parts of the farm. But primarily, I want to grow large blocks of short rotation coppice that produces biomass that we can then cut, chip, and then include in the bedding for the ducks, which eventually becomes the compost that we produce. Um, and the ducks will also be rotated around that coppice. And we're talking about a very densely stocked coppice of very fast growing biomass, like willow, poplar. In our case, gray alder grows incredibly well on our fields. So um, we would rotate the birds amongst that. They obviously do their thing and fertilize the ground underneath there. That helps so with the biomass. You know, so any, any, there's no waste there. You know, anything you're feeding the ducks, that ultimately gets pooped down beneath the trees. The trees use that. They grow. The trees provide the shade and the shelter for the poultry. We have a rotation of cutting that biomass. We chip it up and we include it into our bedding and then ultimately the compost that we produce. Now, the compost that we produce is going to be, we've, um, we've been experimenting a lot with vermicompost and with farming worms specifically. So, so we come back to insects. <laughs> we come back to insects again. And actually the reason why we started experimenting with uh, worms was because I thought originally, ah, oh, I can produce worms to feed to the ducks as their protein. But no, 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 big no, no, because A, there's a very small loop there. There's a very small cycle between the duck manure, which the worms feed on, and then the ducks feeding on the worms. That loop is too small and frowned upon generally. Uh, so that for that reason, it's no good. But also um, the practicalities of producing the quantity of worms in a consistent supply to feed to the ducks. Logistically, it's it's just not doable. Um, so what I realized was, no, 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 no. The worms are, we want to keep the worms as um, 
as little workers on the farm who basically take the the manure and the waste from the ducks and turn it into a super compost basically and and there's a lot of established science on the benefits of vermicompost and the differences between aerated compost um uh, or and an actual vermicompost so vermicompost is much more nutrient dense and it's much more it's much richer and it's much stronger um so there are a lot of benefits to vermicompost and there's just a How's lot the of benefits for raising worms like is that like it's niche in, in the, in the, uh, no, you've done that before with duck eggs i'm yeah. not so scared about that but is there maybe a benefit from like the current input prices that there there's more people are more searching for the non half a heavy fossil fuel chemical fertilizer mm -hmm. uh, because it went whatever percentage up it went in your uh, local uh, co-op where you have to buy it like yeah. i'm imagining a lot of alternative uh, quote-unquote alternative input companies are getting a lot of calls this year do you see mm -hmm. that as well like okay we have this political situation which is pushing our input price our input prices up but actually we might use it as a as a stepping yeah. stone to a system where we're going to produce a lot of inputs for other people that yeah. don't have the this huge political and environmental cost to it exactly so um when all of this stuff kicked off i was like well it's negatively impacting the feed price but actually fertilizer prices are skyrocketing you see now every farmer around here they were just spreading their muck like crazy. They were using every last scrap of muck they had. And all of a sudden, the local growers who usually, you know, get muck for what free. What is muck? What is muck? Oh, sorry. Muck being manure, animal manure, okay. farmyard manure. Um, and, you know, usually the local growers and stuff are pretty much getting the stuff free as a waste product from farmers. Um but. And now uh, they can't get hold of any because everybody's making use of every last drop of manure that they've got um, or crumb. Um, and so, uh, yes, our, our, duck, our, duck man, yeah. our, our duck manure becomes a lot more valuable. And the interesting thing about ducks is um, their manure is very rich. It's like chicken manure everyone knows that chicken manure is the most potent of all animal manures but ducks manure is equally as potent but it actually has much less ammonia in it and ammonia is what burns plants so you have to be careful with chicken manure because you can quite easily burn your plants if you apply it um, uh, too much and with duck manure it's much more gentle but it's still potent um, and ducks produce a lot of waste um, i read there was um, a study that had been done, which I read, and I, how true this is, I don't know, but apparently, according to them, ducks actually produce more manure per kilo of body weight than any other livestock um, or any other farmed livestock, should I say. So um, ducks produce a lot of manure. Um, it's good quality manure. And because Which is an issue if you're living of duck eggs, but is an opportunity if you're selling manure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and on top of that, we're using um, a lot of bedding in the house. Okay. We use, we used to use straw. We now use this, um, this like wood chip sawdust stuff that we get um, from um, a biomass boiler pellet manufacturer. And they have a byproduct that comes out of that process, which is like a dust that they can't actually use. 
So we actually use that now in our house for bedding, but we apply a lot of bedding, more bedding than you would normally do with other livestock because ducks are ground nesting birds and you can't get them to lay in a raised up nest box. So in order to reduce the labor on the washing side, because you, you really do have to layer, wash it up. Layer, layer, layer. Yeah. You just throw as much bedding as you can at it because then your eggs come out cleaner. So as a result, we've got a lot of manure, a lot of carbon in bedding and a lot of nitrogen. So you're feeding um, that through the worms and then it's ready to, to sell. Feeding it through the worms. And it's been shown that when, um, so when that material moves through a worm's gut, it comes out the other end at a perfect pH. It's 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 neutral, spot on, and um, they also kill a lot of the pathogens and and um, bad bacteria. And at the same time, they inoculate those castings. What comes out the other end is actually like love the fact that it's called castings. Yeah, I remember from it's, co it's called castings. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a, it's, so it's, it, it's um, the probiotics that come out, the beneficial bacteria that come out of the worm's gut the other end didn't exist, you know, before it went in the other side. So uh, along and have you been with, selling that already or not? Like as a no, fertilizer piece or that's, that's one of the pieces to get started. Yeah. I, I found some, I I've, I've, I've produced some on the farm and I've, I've tested it with some of our stuff that we were growing in the polytunnel. And I was just amazed by how good it was. I mean, I used some stuff that I produced. Um, I grew winter squash in it one year And winter squash is a very hungry crop. You know, you produce these really big uh, fruits. And then the next year, I took some of that beautiful black gold that we had produced and had already produced the squash. And I went and I grew tomatoes in it, which is another very hungry crop. Which is not light and, either, yeah. And next, next to the tomatoes, I, I had some locally produced uh, organic certified compost that is generally well considered. And I put some tomatoes in that compost and some of the tomatoes in my compost, which was a year old already. And uh, I left it in the polytunnel and ended up being too busy to manage the, the plants, um, you know, dealing as with all that stuff on farmer. the farm. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually, in the beginning, I was like, oh, there's, there's no difference. They're both growing the same. Um, okay, so nothing. Which already special. would be an interesting thing. Yeah, Because which already I was like, oh, well, to okay. yeah, yeah. yeah, I was like, at least, you know, we're matching, at least matching this compost. And then I just totally left the tomatoes because I was like crazy busy. And I came back later on, the polytunnel's all like overgrown and crazy and it's just been neglected. And there are these tomatoes and the ones that are sitting in our vermicompost, still lush and green. And the ones that are sitting in the, the commercially, the local compost that we got were all yellowing and dying. And clearly I had, they were root bound and I took the plants out of the pots and I looked and, you know, the roots were rack curling around and they'd been sitting in those pots way too long and they hadn't been watered. And, and I was just like, wow. Okay. So even despite the fact, so somehow this vermicompost is really just giving it a lot of steam and helping it get through despite the neglect that it received. So yeah. <laughs> I, I was really convinced when I saw that and I was like, wow, imagine when we start selling fresh vermicompost that isn't, that hasn't been grown in for a year already. Um, and so that's the product that we want to produce. Um, you know, it's a very, it's a product that you apply in much smaller volumes 
Um, and, and generally, vermicompost is worth roughly 10 times the price. If you go and look at prices of compost online, you'll see standard compost versus vermicompost. Pretty consistently, the vermicompost is 10 times the value per liter is what they sell it in to regular compost. So when I look at the economics of a duck or duckonomics, you know, there's the two genetics output. and the, the, the output. Yeah, it's not the egg. There's, there's the genetics, it's yeah, but the actually, e the table egg, yeah. Yeah, there's two primary outputs. It's an egg and it's some poop. And it's kind of ironic that the situation we're in is that actually, do you know what that that egg, unless it's the genetics and the breed and the fertile egg, that egg as a table egg is worth much less than the poop that comes out the other side. So, um, and how did the black soldier fly fertilizer come into that? Like, are you going to mix that through as well? Uh, or that's um, just a separate piece and, and let's see. Do you know what? I don't know yet. I mean, um, what happens when you mix that with vermicompost? I mean, you're talking about some serious rocket fuel. Um, maybe it's better to sell it as a, as a, as, yeah. um, as its own product. But, you know, we're, I think that if we're talking realistically, the compost business is much closer in terms of feasibility. The, um, black soldier flies are a bit further out because we have to scale up to a thousand ducks to make that work as a minimum. And you have to manage that facility and, and, and get the, get all the, yeah. um, the issues out. I mean, that's, that, that's going to take a few generations of like soldier flies before you get that to an optimum. Plus yeah. you have to haul stuff onto the farm first, which yeah. is not easy. Yeah. And the mixing and blending. Yeah, no, that's of course. We, a, we a have, um, we have capital, we have a lot of capex to not, I say a lot, you know, in the greater scheme of things, it's not that much money, but we need to get a few things set up on the farm in order to scale the ducks up to a thousand and to get one of these shipping containers set up. So that's further out in the future. What's closer in the future is the short rotation coppers, the biomass production, um, the compost, and the vermicomposting um, that can happen. You know, I'm already producing vermicompost now in preparation for for spring next year. Um, so that's kind of where we want the farm to go. But you know, cash cash is king. Cash flow is super important, and it doesn't really matter what kind of dream you have for the future if you can't if you can't sort the cash flow out, then you can't get there. And um, you know. Uh, I, there's a really, I love the saying, as Mike Tyson once said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And we've just been punched in the face multiple times, many, many times over the last seven years. And I feel like we're, we're, we're starting to learn. We're starting to learn how to duck and weave a little bit, the punches, but, um, Pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. We, 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 we've, we've, yeah. So that's the idea behind the 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 crowdfunding campaign um and uh if if we can if we can get through the winter then hopefully we can we can level park carrig up and and make ourselves more resilient and uh, adapt to this future that we we all face i think it's a a gazillion other questions i i want to ask and there's a whole other chapter i want to go into in terms of your vision for um, small, but most importantly, large scale agriculture and the regenerative future. But I also want to be conscious of your time. And, um, I would think we'll leave it at that. This is the, the emerging or the, the current moment, the end of October 2022 is, is now. And, and hopefully we'll 
see you through the winter. Like you, you'll go through the winter, you'll make it. Um, and then we can sit and, and explore. First of all, we're going to talk a lot about compost at the time for sure. And because yeah. you would have learned a lot and you would have sold for sure already. And you would be way further down the line with black soldier flies or other flies. And, mm. uh, but also to hear your vision and what you've learned in this. Um, everything needs to be small scale, but actually the future might be larger. And, and what mm. your vision is there, that would be, uh, I think, a part two. So I, I want to leave yeah. it at that. And you probably have some uh, some final words to share. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, just the last point to say is on the YouTube channel, you know, like um, if, if there are people out there listening Follow to them. this. Yeah. Um, yeah, if there are people out there listening to this thinking, well, I, I had plans to do this sort of really small scale, hyper diversified um lean agile farm and and that was you know i think if there are people out there that want to do that i really i want to encourage them to to follow us on youtube and watch watch this process unfold because we had all the same ideas and we've read the same books as you and we've watched the same influences on, on youtube as you and, and then you got punched in the face yeah we got punched in the face multiple times and you know we've we've done the diversification the stacking the enterprises we've done the the niche products the premium products we've done the no dig we've done the agroforestry stuff we've you know we've it's not like it's not like we haven't tried the stuff and i think that um, there's a lot of problems with this idea of small-scale agriculture being the future. I, my, my belief is that we need large-scale regenerative agriculture, and that that is really the future and, and what is going to get us out of this mess that we face. Um, so before you go and spend your money on a little parcel of land <clears throat> and start trying to change the world like we did, just take care and and perhaps, you know, uh, watch how things unfold for us because it, it's it's very tough. Um, and there's, I think it's important to say that there are um, influences out there that have a very different context. Um, you know, it, it, on the surface, it 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 looks like they're making it work, but there's a lot of other things at play. Um, and and so your your specific context is always really important, but. That's all I'll say. And um, yeah, please do follow us on YouTube. And um, no matter what happens, you know, whether we make it or or not, I think um, I'd, I'd like to share our journey with people. So thanks for having yeah. me on. And and thank you for that. Because it's been um, refreshing, extremely needed and, and very interesting to see obviously unfolding and we'll, we'll be rooting. And uh, of course, whenever we the crowdfunding will go live, we'll put it in the description below as well. But definitely follow the YouTube channel and the social media channels of Josh to see how, how the story unfolds over the next month, because that's what we're talking about. This is not a, a long, I mean, it, it hopefully will be a long-term story, but this is at the moment a short-term story. Fingers crossed, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Ken. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links we discussed in this episode, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash posts. If you liked this episode, why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts? That really helps. Thanks again and see you next time.